forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time. Writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's read and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning or winning inside, fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative, character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh huh. It's comic book commentary. This is Tina Horn, the writer and creator of Safe Sex, or SFSX, as it's alternately known, which is a new science fiction social thriller. Issue one is out on September 25th, 2019, in comic stores everywhere. This is my very first comic book series, and actually really my first time writing fiction of any kind on this scale. I'm primarily a nonfiction writer, journalist, performance artist, sex worker myself, as well as a podcaster. I have a podcast of my own called Why Are People Into That, which is a conversation show about sex, kink, gender, and love. Uh, The themes of that podcast are, which I've done independently for over five years, are very much also the themes of this comic book series. And I am so happy to be exploring them in the context of entertainment and action adventure and this kind of storytelling. And I'm so thrilled to be on Ben's show to tell you all about issue one, which has had a long, arduous journey uh, to my hands and your hands and the um, uh, shelves of comic book stores everywhere. So I'm, uh, it's, it's my little gaby and I am so excited to be talking about it today. Let's see. Um, I want to make sure to shout out Michael Dowling, who did the pencils inks and colors of this issue and a few subsequent issues as well. Uh, We'll have many occasion as we walk through this book to talk about Mike's brilliance. Uh, I'm going to talk about the cover art by Tula Lote to get started, um, but just to make sure that I mention Steve Wands, who did the lettering and has really taught me how much a letterer can bring to comic books. I mean, I am a lifelong comic book lover uh, and reader and fan, uh, but this was my my first time writing one. So I've learned so much from the editors and artists and designers, really just everybody in the industry that I've worked with on this book and had so much incredible support. And I'm so grateful. And uh, the somebody who I really want to shout out, who has given me a ton of insight and support and knowledge is Lauren McCubbin, who is the editor and designer of the book Now That We're at Image. I know Lauren from back in the day in the Oakland sort of queer, feminist, sexy art world scene, which is also very much a scene that has inspired the underground counterculture of this book and the overall aesthetics of this book. So it was really meaningful to me when Lauren came onto the team and she has given me so many opportunities. And like I said, so much insight, very grateful to her. And she also did the back matter of the book. So a little later when we see the back matter pages, which we call dirty work for obvious reasons, um, and as well as these these title pages and, and so much else about the book, um, you know, you can really see Lauren's hand in there. She also designed this amazing neon logo and has really just been such a helpful, supportive, amazing presence. So shout out to McCubbin. Oh, and I wanted to say that 
uh, McCubbin also did the the back matter and designing and editing for Bitch Planet, which is a huge influence on this book. I think without Bitch Planet, there would be no safe sex. So uh, having her involved in that way has been really meaningful. Um, so you should check her out and check out her work as well as the work of everybody that was involved in this book. Um, so somebody that I'm going to talk about first, uh, because she did the cover is Tula Lote. Tula is such an accomplished comic book cover maker and also community organizer. Uh, so uh, being able to work with her was a total dream come true. I think her work has this feminine strength and eroticism that just totally blows me away. And she is so good at taking all of my sort of vague, like, I want it to be like this, but sort of like this. And here's a really weird Pinterest board um, and, and making something that is better than anything I could have possibly directed or designed. So shout out to Tula. The image that she did for the cover of this book of these two beautiful, colorful queers sort of with their like love and passion and pleasure popping in the midst of this like gray, oppressive, uh, riot gear police scene was the only image that anybody in the public had seen for safe sex for like a year or more. And, um, and I'm actually even though a lot of the circumstances of that um, had a lot of grief involved, I am really glad that this is the image that has been out there because I think it's so powerful. It's so iconic, instantly iconic, and encompasses so many of the themes that the book is about. Um, So to give you a sense of Tula's and my collaborative process, you know, I sort of described the scene and how I wanted it to feel and how I wanted it to look and some of the the fashion details of of the people in the middle of the picture, including the um, the tattoos, including that prince tattoo, uh, the Dirty Mind, which is the name of the underground community in this book, is very much a tribute to Prince. So getting Prince on the uh, on the cover there was very meaningful to me. Um, oh, this actually might be a good moment to mention that this cover was created and designed by Tula and actually put out into the world before we had totally developed the world and the characters and the storyline. So these these two characters that you see kissing amidst, uh, you know, being uh, uh, these these riot police attempting to pull them apart are actually not technically the characters from this story. The, the character on the left definitely could be Avery, who is our hero and point of view character. Um, and the sort of more trans femme character with the prince tattoo uh, could absolutely be a part of the Dirty Mind, but is not specifically a character that's in the story. So um, in case anybody is confused about that, I just wanted to put it out there. It's very much the the spirit of the, the kinds of people who are involved in the story, um, but it's not, it's not actually technically supposed to be anybody that we meet right away. But maybe we'll tell the story of what is happening in this image at some point down the line. Anyway, so to get an example of sort of how I work with artists, I knew that I wanted this image to sort of be people experiencing a moment of pleasure and joy and connection um, in in the middle of an oppressive regime and for it to invoke the idea of pleasure as protest. So I sent Tula two images. Well, one was a series of images um, that Them magazine took of a kiss-in that was done in front of Trump Tower um, to protest Mike Pence's 
institutionalized homophobia as well as Trump and his entire regime. Um, there are these beautiful images. You should look up them magazine kiss in of all of these queers. Uh, they happen to be raining during the protest. And so they're just, they're, they're soaked from the rain, but just like passionately, uh, lovingly uh, kissing on one another. And they're, they're such beautiful moving images. And, um, and then I also sent her the instantly legendary Black Lives Matter document photograph by Jonathan Bachman from a uh, Baton Rouge Black Lives Matter protest um, where a young woman named Aisha Evans is about to be arrested and she is just standing with this almost supernatural seeming grace and stability in the face of all of these riot police in all of this riot gear. And, you know, she's wearing a sundress and is totally centered in her vulnerability, um, but also her determination. And and that was the energy and spirit that I really wanted to be captured, not only by this cover image, but really also by the story in general. And I think Tula did such a beautiful job of synthesizing uh, those two images that come from protests and the spirit of resistance that is happening in America right now, which is very significant to this particular American dystopian story in Safe Sex, which is the kind of dystopia that is also really kind of more like a social satire or social thriller where I've just taken the way that things really are now in America and like tweaked up the intensity and tweaked up the absurdity just a little bit so that's like a little bit more upsetting for you, especially if you have not been victimized as much by the circumstances of this dystopia, the fictional dystopia and the real dystopia that we're living in. And you are kind of like, oh, yeah, that would be really bad. And it's like, yeah, motherfuckers, it's it's been this bad. It's been this bad for us. It's been this bad for a lot of people. So in that way, the cover very much exemplifies what safe sex is all about. And now let's get into the comic itself. So Page one is a beautiful splash that Michael Dowling created. It takes place at the Dirty Mind, which, as I've said, is the underground counterculture kind of collective world um, that is trying to survive and thrive in an increasingly under this sort of increasing control of an ultra conservative regime called the party. In America today, it takes place in San Francisco. This is very much a, a story of the gentrification of San Francisco, which is uh, definitely something that I experienced living there in my 20s. I live in New York City now. Um, but uh, sexual countercultures of San Francisco really turned me out and made me what I am, taught me who I am, and is where my my chosen family and, and my community and so much of my livelihood and art life emerged from. So I wanted to both pay tribute to those cultures and also comment on the ways that conservative respectability politics and capitalist tech influences are marginalizing sexuality and, you know, what is perceived to be transgressive sexuality, things that are too queer or too slutty or too whorish or too pornographic and and kind of like throw them under the bus or sweep them under the rug or push them to the edge of town or push them underground. And uh, that that's very much what this story is is meant to illustrate. 
So here, and I'll show my hand a little bit and say that these first few pages are taking place, are are a flashback, actually. They're taking place three years before the main action of this first arc of safe sex, which is called Protection get it? Safe sex, protection. And so, but yes, this is sort of a a moment of what we really wanted to show was like the best fucking sex party, the best kinky play party, the best dance party, just like the best fucking night of anybody's life. Uh, Spoiler alert, right before things take a turn for the extreme worse. So you can see from this banner, this is a sex worker appreciation night. Uh, Jones, who is the creator and head of the Dirty Mind, uh, who is one of our main characters, um, you know, periodically throws these sex worker appreciation nights because the Dirty Mind is both a community center for dance parties and art making. And, you know, there's a a health clinic and, uh, you know, everything that you would want from uh, sort of utopia within the dystopian uh, community center. Um, And it's also a place that facilitates sex work. So there's spaces for escorts to see clients. There's dungeons for fetish providers to see clients. There's screening rooms for for porn and uh, and strip clubs, you know, sort of a little bit of the like Sam Delaney, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, you know, idea of uh, of those kinds of world as a space for community and, and liberation. And, um, and yeah, so so this is definitely a night that is supposed to be like, you know, sex workers don't need to work, they can just relax and have fun um, and be themselves. And uh, yeah, there's some graffiti that Mike threw in there uh, for us that says, fuck the party, let's fucking party. Um, and yeah, in this scene, I just, I really, I really wanted this, this splash that has strap on sex and rope suspension and go-go dancing and cage dancing and, you know, an orgy going on, but also people just like fucking hanging out and having a good time. You know, I've been to a lot of parties like this in a lot of environments like this. And, you know, a lot of, uh, so have a lot of, uh, of my friends and loved ones and chosen family and community, you know, these are the spaces that we try to facilitate. And so often when there are scenes like this in comics, in literature, in movies and TV, as well as journalism and and nonfiction, um, you know, they're portrayed as, uh, you know, a a sign that a character is like real, things are really getting bad for a character because they're in this really seedy underground or they're thrown in to add a little bit of like prurient interest, like sexiness, but there's no like subjectivity from like what it actually means for these people to be to be having this event. Um, You know, it's very much portrayed as like somebody, you know, parachuting in or like on safari and just uh, in a a culturally appropriative way, just being like, oh, um, uh, we're going to give a sense of like what we think this would be like, but we're also going to show that it's like, uh, you know, just a bunch of people who are trying to to feel something, to feel anything, and uh, you know, not actually something that could be about values like community, joy, and pleasure, and uh, all the things that it actually does mean to me and a lot of people that I know and love. So, really wanted to portray that, um, and also to portray, you know, the the agony of the contrast between what happens next. So. But before we get there, let's go to page two, which is a panel that has that I've just had a lot of conversations about. Uh, it has been controversial in my life, 
even though the comic is technically not out until next week. Um, so what we see here is Avery, our main character, getting fisted. I was I I really liked the idea of introducing our main character getting fisted. She's being fisted by her then boyfriend, who will eventually become her husband, George, and uh, the woman who's dirty talking in her ear is her best friend Casey. And you know they're surrounded by their friends and other revelers, and she's in a leather sling and uh and yeah she's getting fisted so for those of those people who are listening who don't know what fisting is it is simply a sex act where someone puts part of their hand or their entire hand in someone's hole that hole could be a vagina it could be an ass you can definitely fist someone's mouth um whatever words you use whatever you call it whatever style you like it can definitely be really kinky and really intense and it can also be like very sensual very very romantic very loving um fisting really there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding around it. It gets a bad rap as something that is seen as really violent or extreme. Um, But for a lot of people I know, it's like just a fucking Tuesday afternoon. So I really, I wanted to show that. And we had so many conversations about like, can we actually show this character's legs being spread? Can we see her vulva? Should the hand be all the way inside? Should there be more wetness? I wanted there to be more wetness. Um, Kind of liked the idea of like George fisting Avery's cunt all the way. uh, But then, you know, we don't get to see what we see here, which is his thumb on her clit, which is very, we will see later on in the story that portraying clitoral stimulation uh, during sex is uh, very important to me. (laughs) And um, yeah, so this is what we settled on. Uh, I can't remember if I said this already, but we were trying to figure out if he should be wearing like a a nitrile glove or if he should be barehanded or what. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm really happy with how this panel ended up. Uh, Mike did a beautiful fucking job. Uh, You know, he also took all of my notes about there being bisexual lighting, which if you haven't heard the term bisexual lighting, it's sort of uh, something that has come into vogue recently or that people have noticed that uh, a lot of music videos or fashion spreads that are sort of coded as queer or are made by queer creators like Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer, especially the Make Me Feel video and St. Vincent's Mass Seduction record and videos and, and tour um, will sort of have these like bright pinks and purples and blues, um, these sort of like jewel tone, neon tone, uh, uh, contrasting, uh, sort of, sort of extreme contrast of these very bright colors. Um, but also with like a sort of darkness and grittiness to them as well. Um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not actually a very visual person, um, which has been a big learning curve for me being a comics writer. And I've learned so much from the artists that I've worked with. Um, but I do love cultural criticism. So I'll like send an artist, like an essay that's like, here's the thing about bisexual lighting. I, as a bisexual, love these colors. So I can confirm it's bisexual lighting. Can you put that in the scene? Um, and everybody has been so accommodating of me being like, draw it like this essay says. Um, uh, so I feel really grateful about that. So anyway, here's some fisting going on. Um, it's just really meant to show a moment of communal eroticism and, and pleasure and, and joy um, amongst our main characters, which is really how I wanted to introduce them. And, you know, we're really going to put them through the ringer in this story. And so I wanted to um, uh, show show this this moment of pleasure and connection 
to show really like what are they fighting for throughout this entire story. And you definitely see that sort of exemplified in Avery's voiceover, which I think you over the course of this scene come to realize is looking back with a sense of longing from the future at this moment that she was allowed to really let go and be herself. Um, and in the uh, second panel on this page, we see Jones, who, as I've said, is the the creator and founder and head of the Dirty Mind, and you know everybody's fucking like mommy and best friend, um, who is like the fiercest, most badass leather dyke community organizer uh, you could ever hope to know. And this is her girlfriend Sylvia, another badass. We'll see that she is the sort of tech genius behind all of the all of the technology and infrastructure that the dirty mind has to uh protect themselves from the surveillance of the party also just like sexy fucking badass and they're like the power couple of the dirty mind and here they are like looking down over everybody like fucking and having a good time and feeling great which is contrasted with what we see happening on page three, which is a violent police raid, which we get the sense that this kind of thing is happening more and more and is escalating to the point where the police are actually here to arrest Jones um, for self-identification, deviance, exploitation, pandering, and perverting others against God's law. They also say the party is here to rescue you from yourselves. You know, this is definitely a moment where I will shamelessly say that my political agenda is showing its slip. Um, You'll see that also in a lot of the rhetoric of the propaganda from the party, which we'll see later on. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is definitely an example of the way that my journalism work and cultural criticism work and activists work is, uh, you know, leaking into my ability to tell an exciting, propulsive action adventure story. So um, yeah, that's my agenda and I'm sticking to it. So what we see here on a more emotional level is Avery realizing that like, fuck, if things are escalating to the point where the party is arresting Jones, then like I am definitely next because Avery, as we'll see, is also a leader and a very beloved public figure in this community as a queer pornographer. And she impulsively panics, grabs George and says, we got to get the fuck out of here. So she doesn't stay and help fight, which is what we see uh, Casey and and Sylvia doing here. Uh, You know, she doesn't stay and help protest. She doesn't stay and help anybody heal. Um, She just like totally fucking bails and escapes through the catacombs beneath the, the dirty mind and through the sewers. And it's just like, I'm tired of fighting. I just want to be safe. And that is when we flash forward three years to page four, where we see George and Avery trying to lead an assimilated, conformist, married life in San Francisco. And we'll see all of the ways that they have to conform. um, But, you know, sort of part of their strategy is like, if we conform in public, then we'll be afforded this safe, private space where we can really be ourselves um, and have all the dirty sex that we want. Um, This page, also very controversial, I I, I guess. I I didn't really even realize that I was doing it, but I I guess I really wanted to get my main character like as fucking laid as possible in the first four pages of this book. So uh, here she is again, uh, getting off and... um, 
Uh, yeah, it, the, the controversy over this page had to do with the vibrator. So I'm also very glad that the vibrator stayed in the picture. Um, most people that I know use vibrators to get off during solo sex and partner sex and group sex of all kinds. And you almost never see them being used in any form of storytelling or entertainment. Um, and I think that that is whack. So it was very important to me to show that. Um, and, you know, I really sort of learned firsthand the ways that, for whatever reason, vibrators are considered more obscene than the suggestion of even, you know, heteronormative intercourse, which is technically what we're seeing here, uh, because even though both Avery and George are queer, they're both cisgender, and they are in a heteronormative marriage trying to take advantage of their passing privilege, um, which is a theme that will figure very strongly in the story. But anyway, in this moment, um, you know, they're having loving sex and getting off and having a really great time. And what's wrong with that? nothing, I think. Um, and yeah, another thing that was really important to me to show, um, as somebody who like teaches classes on, on dirty talk, um, is the idea of, you know, sort of contrasting dirty talk that seems very, uh, you know, uh, violent on the surface, like that pussy is going to kill me, um, or is about, you know, control, like take me over, um, you know, contrasted with, you know, very like loving sex. Uh, and we see on page five, um, that, you know, George is dirty talking about murder and, uh, and Avery is saying, I love you too, baby. Um, so that sort of irony of dirty talk is, is something that I wanted to, something from my nonfiction work that I wanted to incorporate into my fiction work. And I think it works pretty well in this scene. And this is also, uh, oh yeah, and another thing that I, that was very important to me that I really fucking hate in movies and TV, and, and you see it in comics too, is, is what's often called the L-shaped modesty sheet, um, where people have sex, but then they're like lying in bed having pillow talk and like the sheet is covering like tits and genitals. Um, but like, that is not what beds look like after sex in my experience. So I definitely wanted, um, uh, to just not only show like active sexuality, but also show like flaccid penises and people like fucking like lying in cum stained sheets with the fucking vibrator, just like sitting on the bed. Um, and just being able to see like that kind of nudity in that way was also very important to me. So another thing that we see on this page, the first dystopian concept that I came up with for this story, which is the idea of paperwork and, uh, paperwork uh, as instilled or installed uh, by the conservative government organization called the party um, is is basically a bureaucratic system where everybody in America uh, is supposed to file paperwork and report on themselves uh, when when they're having sex when they're experiencing pleasure right and uh, you know that's an example of what I was talking about before where I really just kind of wanted to turn up the absurdity of surveillance um, and sort of a Kafkaesque uh, you know bureaucratic control uh, ju just like just like a little bit um, so that people would understand what it might feel like to have your sexuality um, surveilled and policed all the time. 
which many of us already experience. And here, what we see exemplified is another element of the dystopia, which is the idea of a purity score and that everybody has a purity score. And it's definitely inspired in part by Gary Scheingart's super sad true love story, um, where you have this purity score that's kind of like a credit score and kind of like a social media cachet. Um, and, you know, it's basically meant to represent your morality and that you have more access to different things in society based on, you know, the good moral standing that you're in with the government. So George, who has the passing privilege of being able to be in a straight, passing, heteronormative, cisgender marriage and also have a government job working at the Pleasure Center, which we will see very soon, um, is, you know, and also just like being a fucking white guy, has the privilege of being able to file his paperwork using his halo, which is this Fitbit-like bracelet that actually everybody has to wear. Um, But, you know, George has the quick convenience of being like, okay, I had sex, intercourse with wife, filed, I'm done my purity score is in good standing. I'm in good moral standing with the government. And uh, Avery, because she spent so much of her 20s actively rebelling against the government, has like a really shitty purity score. Um, And so as we will see later on, she has to go to these like DMV-like kiosks in order to file her paperwork, which of course is a pain in the ass and is, you know, obviously a system that is created by design, you know, I wanted to comment on the way that class and other intersecting elements of social stratification uh, keep people marginalized and and sexually marginalized, uh, just also by like creating the um, insidious trauma of, uh, you know, like the fucking pain in the ass of this kind of bureaucracy being like death by a thousand cuts and the microaggressions that and shame that go along with that being death by a thousand cuts. But anyway, so we see that exemplified here on page five by George and Avery having this like little marital squabble. It's something as I learned writing fiction that was really important to me was the idea that when you write a fight when you write a conflict that I, I really I really wanted to learn how to write a fight where both people or all of the people involved in the fight like kind of have a point. Um, and I think that both George and Avery in the scene really has a point. He's like, if you just follow the rules, they'll leave us alone. Um, and up until this point, he um, he is he has every reason to believe that that's true and that's right. And she's like, this is fucking stupid, and uh, and she's she's right. It's fucking stupid. Um, but also, if she neglects to play by the rules, um, she's not going to be safe. Which is like the whole point of why they like abandoned their friends and are trying to lead this conformist assimilationist life is to be safe. So, moving along to page six, um, you know, they've had their little fight and it's kind of given way to flirtation and uh, just getting ready for their day. This is definitely an example of a moment from my own life that I put into Avery's life. Avery's not 
proxy for me. She's not based on me. Um, but I did put a lot of my anxieties into her life and, and this exact moment of realizing that um, you're trying to go in for a job interview and you're trying to look a little bit more buttoned up and you're realizing that um, all of your blouses and pencil skirts and like supposedly like nice clothes were purchased for slutty secretary scenes um, is definitely something that I experience to this day. Um, so I wanted to put that in there. And uh, yeah, and you know, then they're having this like, sort of loving moment. Oh, yeah. And so her job interview is that she is, uh, is finally trying to uh, just bite the bullet and get a job working for the network. It's probably very obvious by now that I just went the Orwellian easy way out of naming everything involved at the party. Um, we have the the Pleasure Center, which is where George works, which we'll see in a second. Uh, the the network, which is the like Fox News style, you know, propaganda machine. Um, and uh, so th- thanks, thanks Orwell. Uh, yeah, so she is just interviewing for a shitty PA job, even though she has a degree in filmmaking and a ton of experience making movies um, because she can't put her filmmaking experience on her resume because it's all smut. So um, she is dealing with that humiliation in this story, as we will soon see. And as she rushes out the door, because she's realizing that she can't wear this slutty blouse and pencil skirt, she also totally forgets her paperwork, which George realizes and grabs for her. So on page seven, we're really getting a sense of the not only the rhetoric of the propaganda of the parties, America and the parties San Francisco, um, but also a sort of children of men style integration of propaganda into, you know, everyday civic life. We see this sign that says purity will set you free. And the idea of San Francisco being cleaned up and made more family friendly. And uh, Avery is going shopping for her job interview at the network, which is the company that makes all of this propaganda. And, uh, and she, she goes to the store called Feminine Standards. I will say, I do crack myself up sometimes. And I still laugh every time I see this panel that says Feminine Standards. Um, uh, yeah, oh, and here we see uh, one of our big bads of the protection arc of safe sex, whose name is Judy Borman. And Judy Borman is, you know, a total second wave feminist, uh, trans exclusionary radical feminist, sex work exclusionary radical feminist who has very strict ideas of, uh, you know, what what feminism is and what femininity is and should be. And um, it really just exemplifies the kind of feminist who throws other people under the bus in order to gain power, which is very much what Judy Borman has done, which is the reason that she has so much power within the party. And we will learn more about her later. And here we have a moment where the woman who works at feminine standards is asking Avery, you know, uh, you're going in for a job interview, what makes you feel empowered? Uh, And we see this sort of uh, fugue state flashback of her in fetish gear, uh, looking really glamorous. And that's what makes Avery feel really powerful. It's the kind of thing that Judy Borman thinks is 
oppressive to women, um, but actually has been incredibly important to Avery in her life. Um, but she knows that she can't, she can't dress that way anymore. It's not what power means to her anymore. It, it can't be. Um, and so she sort of gets disappointed um, that it's sort of a moment where she's really realizing how fucked up the world that she's living in can be. So here we see George on his way to work. Um, more of that integrated network propaganda of Judy Borman kind of talking about what she is all about. Um, anybody who has ever been to San Francisco or watched kinky porn will probably recognize the building that we see here, which is uh, based on the San Francisco Armory, which is a place where kink.com made pretty extreme kink and fetish porn for a decade. Um, and I definitely wanted to definitely wanted to base this particular building off of that real life building in San Francisco. Uh, this is the building where the dirty mind used to be, but has now been colonized and taken over by the party and transformed into the pleasure center, which is where George works and where he has to push paper in this like Kafka-esque bureaucratic nightmare, which is also definitely based on one of the main dystopian influences to this story, which is Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Great movie. And yeah, I really wanted to use a real place in order to exemplify um, what that sort of colonization and cultural appropriation and gentrification could be like. And here we get a little sense of George arriving at, you know, this very bland workspace and that he has a scheme where he is actually going to try to file Avery's paperwork for her manually, which is, of course, a huge violation of the rules um, because he doesn't want her purity score and their like joint purity score and their uh, sort of social cachet to drop any further than it already has. Okay, so... Page nine, Avery has her new feminine standards job interview outfit and she gets off the bus and she spots some of her old friends who are maybe unrecognizable uh, from how we saw them in the flashback because they have to sort of be incognito when they're out and about. Um, but it is Casey and Sylvia, and uh, standing in the middle of them with the orange hair is Denis, who is new to the Dirty Mind, who we haven't met before. So Avery kind of has this, like, naive enthusiasm of somebody who has kind of bailed on her friends and is like, what? What's the big deal? Nice to see you. And we can see here that you know, Casey still really loves her and wants to be kind to her, but definitely feels really awkward. Sylvia is like, fuck you. I don't even want to see your fucking face. And Denis, who is new to the community and is and is uh, younger, they're, they're like uh, Avery, Casey, Sylvia, they're like all in their like early mid thirties. And Denis is like 19. So you can imagine both that Denis has grown up in you know, sort of gone through puberty and adolescence in 
the party's regime, which has been very difficult for them because Denis is genderqueer and uh, also probably grew up idolizing the dirty mind and specifically Avery, who we learn more and more is kind of this like queer porn superstar, especially for somebody like Denis. So, um, so Denis, <laughs> we can see is like really starstruck in the scene and uh, gets introduced to Avery and, you know, she kind of asks them, how are things going with the dirty mind? Moving on to page 10. And Sylvia's like, fuck you. I don't even want to talk to you. And, you know, Casey sort of reassures Avery not to take it personally. Sylvia is still really torn up about the fact that nobody knows what happened to Jones. They don't know if she's alive or dead or worse. And um, I think that Sylvia really exemplifies the faction of the dirty mind that is not ready to forgive Avery for bailing on them. And, you know, why should she? Why should they? Whereas Casey is like a little bit, a little bit more sympathetic, but is also like, yeah, but we're still out here struggling and you have your marriage and your ability to increase your purity score. So like, ultimately we can't we can't trust you and trust is and trust and forgiveness is a really big theme um in the friendship relationships in this story so kind of uh feeling ambivalent about running into her friends and and maybe sort of repressing some of the guilt that she feels about abandoning them avery moves on to her job interview and more Judy Borman propaganda blaring in the background all the time. We find out that George George's last name is Horowitz, and that means that Avery's last name is now Horowitz. It was important to me that George and Avery are Jewish. It's not something that I explore super in-depth in terms of the ways that they're specifically oppressed by anti-Semitism, but I definitely want that to be part of the subtext and maybe something to explore a little bit further on. Um, so much like the experience that she had with realizing that her clothes were not appropriate for a job interview, she also, you know, tries to put on some like nice makeup and immediately gets judged by this femphobic job interviewer. And, you know, you can probably see by now that the color choices that we made um, and that Mike did such an incredible job with. He has a background as a painter, and I feel like you can really tell, um, especially in his his coloring and his lighting and, and shading, that, you know, everything that represents the underground is, you know, that bisexual lighting and really bold colors and it's sort of a vivaciousness, whereas everything representing the party is very uh, cool and beige and sort of blank, especially the people. And so she kind of gets like shamed into taking off her lip gloss because it's not appropriate, because it calls too much attention to her femininity. And that's definitely something that I wanted to critique and focus on. Um, and then we have this moment where the job interviewer says, okay, so you want to work as a PA for the network and you have this film degree from, you know, your early 20s, but you're in your mid 30s now. Can you explain this gap in your resume? Now, can you explain this gap in your resume is something that sex workers have to deal with all the time. Sex work is work. It's a legitimate job, but it is often, more often than not, something that we can't put on our resume, even if it exemplifies job skills that would be totally appropriate for a job interview, as it is in this case. Avery is a very accomplished filmmaker. She is actually overqualified for this PA job, but she can't actually put that experience on her resume. And that's a very real life thing. In fact, 
when I collaborated on a merch line for safe sex with my dear friend, Jack the Stripper, who um, does a lot of incredible work, including comedy and consulting on movies like Hustlers, and just is an incredible loudmouth sex worker on social media and IRL. Um, And she also does this web store called Strippers Forever, where she sells shirts that say things like off-duty stripper or strippers are people and these hats that say tip her and tip them that are super popular. Um, And so occasionally she will do a collaboration with another creator on a little collection. So we're doing the Dirty Mind collection right now. Um, If you go to strippersforever.com, you can get caps that say Dirty Mind and tank tops that say sex, love and torture and you can see some sort of fan art of the Dirty Mind that that Jack drew. Jack is also a comic artist herself. And there's a little interview with her in the back of this issue as well in the sex work superhero section where I intend to sort of feature real life sex work activists and superheroes. But anyway, when I asked Jack, like, was there something from this issue that really jumped out to you that resonated with you that you want to make some merch about? The first thing that she said was this panel of a job interviewer saying, can you explain this gap in your resume, which of course here is contrasted with Avery at the height of her powers, making queer porn. Uh, Again, we see queer sex, we see androgynous bodies, we see people getting off using sex toys, um, which again was very controversial uh, and totally not gratuitous. This is a very important character moment for Avery. But anyway, so you can actually buy pillowcases from Jack the Stripper and strippersforever.com from the Dirty Mind collection that say, can you explain this gap in your resume? And I have this vision of, you know, lobbies and job interview couches all over the world with these pillows that say, can you explain this gap in your resume as a sort of way of saying it's okay to be out about your background as a sex worker here, which is, again, my political agenda. So and thank you for letting me plug my (laughs) merchandise collection, um, which is not only merch, but also a, a really exciting collaboration with another queer femme sex work artist and entrepreneur. So that's why I am allowing myself to take the time to plug it here. So moving on to page 12. So what George is up to is that he's trying to head up to the 14th floor of the Pleasure Center, formerly the Dirty Mind, to manually file Avery's paperwork for her. So he gets in the elevator and then he's followed into the elevator by none other than our big bad, our turf, swerf, second wave feminist, Judy Borman. And she has clearance with her halo to go into the 13th floor. So that's where she's headed. And they have this little exchange and you kind of get a sense of her imperious personality. She mentions a program that she has going on in the behavioral therapy department, which is definitely something that we will learn more about later on in the series. Now on the 12th floor, she is interrupted by Dr. Powell, who is a white gay man who has also gained a lot of party leadership. And um, we only see in this issue here for a brief moment, but he asks Mrs. Borman if she would be willing to uh, comment for the network, which she's more than happy to do. So she gets off of the elevator before reaching the 13th floor, leaving George in the elevator. And then on page 13, we see him arriving on a floor where he's not supposed to have clearance. And this was actually one of the first sequences that I dreamt up for this story. The idea of somebody trying to do something that they're not supposed to do and 
ending up somewhere that they're not supposed to be and this sort of stark creepy hallway and realizing immediately like there's something wrong here i'm not supposed to be here and trying to leave but then hearing these like ominous screams now here is a moment where steve wands really shines our letterer obviously the job of a letterer in most cases is like if they've done their job you you don't notice it right um but i i actually really appreciate that he's somebody who wants to add these sort of like almost meta flourishes where you know i sort of try to like write out the sfx of the you know what tortured screams sound like luckily with a background as a dominatrix i know what lots of different screams sound like uh and of course when i'm writing whether i'm at home or in a cafe sometimes you will find me like bent over my computer sort of making weird awful noises to myself and then trying to like transcribe them in onomatopoeia but anyway a little insight into my writing process anyway so i love what steve has done here with uh with this scream with the sort of popping uh bright white and pink um that that george hears and of course he's drawn to it because he's like oh it sounds like somebody is suffering or in trouble uh are you okay right and we hear it coming through these glowing doors uh and then uh you know the door slightly open and george sees something that he is not supposed to see what is it you don't find out <laughs> because here we jump cut to Avery at the kiosk, which is very much kind of like DMV kind of hellhole where she is supposed to file her paperwork and she's feeling really grumpy about running into Sylvia and Casey and Denis. And she's feeling really fucking grumpy about how her job interview went. It obviously didn't go very well and she felt really humiliated and degraded by it. And she gets to the front of the line and she realizes that she left her paper- paperwork at home, which is something that we already know. And, you know, she says, God damn it. And this like white lady behind her is like, watch your language. And she's like, go to hell, everybody. And she's just like, heads home at the end of the day. So fucking frustrated. She's just like, had a shitty day. And probably it's been another in a series of really shitty days, especially when she's like, actually trying to like, leave the sanctity of her little love nest with George and try to like interface with this rapidly changing society. So she goes home and she's like, ugh. All I can think about is how I want to like screw my brains out. I like cannot deal. And then we get a little bit of rubbernecking from her neighbors. You know, we're, we're getting a sense here that we're like living in a little bit of a surveillance state where people are telling on each other and they're all rubbernecking as she heads down her hallway to find that the police have broken into her home. And because it's just like this big one, uh, you know, one room apartment, she's like, what the fuck are you doing in my bedroom? Which, you know... Not to put too fine a point on it, but the idea of like the police invading your bedroom is uh, not an accident. So here we see a character who is also going to be a little bit of a big bad in the story. Uh, The inspector who tells her that her husband, George, has been arrested. And she's like, that's not possible. He's the one that follows the rules. If anybody's going to get arrested, it should have been me. And then we see the cops have found illicit materials, which includes her vibrator from earlier. Um, Not an accident uh, that, you know, sex toys, vibrators, things that are used for queer and female pleasure and just like Anything not heteronormative would be considered illicit by the party. And another thing that is considered illicit by the party is Avery's super sexy 
designer, red bottom, six, seven inch heel, peep toe, platform, leather shoes. And this is definitely the kind of thing that Judy Borman would think is oppressive to all women, the idea of high heels. Um, and that is really something that was very symbolic that I wanted to play with in this story. And the thing that the inspector says here, well, boys, looks like you're all going to have to take several showers before you head home to your wife and kids tonight is actually something that the actor who plays Christian Grey in the Fifty Shades of Grey movies said in the press about how he went to a kinky dungeon and, uh, you know, to do research for his role and then had to take several showers um, before he touched his wife and kids. So I just kind of wanted to put a little dig in there um, for the shaming and cultural appropriation and hypocrisy of people who make mass entertainment about kink while also, um, you know, contributing to this violent and shaming oppression of what we really do. And not, it just sounds like an offhand comment, but when people are dehumanized for being who they are, and when they are pathologized or seen as perverted and sick, then there are ways that there are actually like really real material ways that we lose access to basic things like custody of our kids, like the social mobility that comes from being able to get another job. So anyway, to get off my soapbox for a second, you know, that's definitely something that you will see over and over again in this story is, um, you know, how it feels to be uh, dehumanized by the people who are supposedly trying to protect you and make your life safe or make their lives safe. Um, This sequence, I think, is a moment where Michael Dowling's work just shines the most. He is so good at action. I really had to learn how to how to write an action scene for a comic book, how to pace it, how to script it. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of help, but I, I really think that the reason that this scene is so exciting uh, has so much to do with Michael Dowling. And, you know, uh, so the, the, the sort of voiceover theme of the scene is is very much like a like a fuck you to can you explain this gap in your resume from earlier um the idea that like yeah man i have a lot of fucking skills i have incredible core strength and agility from working the pole at the strip club so i can escape from the cops out my fire escape and i'm good at online marketing and i'm good with people and i can perform under pressure and Moving on to page 17, um, this is actually a moment where, you know, I have a lot of expertise that I brought to this story, um, but I also have a lot of amazing friends and, and colleagues and comrades who uh, who know a lot about things like bondage, maybe even more than I do. And so I knew I wanted a scene where Avery had the special skill from, you know, being a kinky pornographer and just like being a kinky person of being able to escape from the cops, like, you cannot handcuff this woman because she's kinky. She knows how to get out of bondage. So I actually talked to my friend Yin, who is the creator and writer of this amazing web series called Mercy Mistress, and a dear friend of mine and a complete bondage expert. And I was like, can you just list some ways for me that somebody would get out of bondage? And they sent me like this really long list. And one of the things that they said is that you can develop hypermobility. And I was like, that is brilliant. So the idea that she that handcuffs can't hold her um, was something that I really wanted to dramatize here. And again, 
Mike has done such an amazing job of making the scene really propulsive um, and really suspenseful and really scary. And, uh, you know, all of that movement is happening on the page. So Avery gets out of the handcuffs. And, you know, uh, from being a sex worker, she has learned how to work well under pressure. She lunges at the inspector. And what is he holding but the illicit material that she's not supposed to have, these super sexy fetish shoes. She grabs the fetish shoe and then Moving on to page 18, this is the moment in issue one that I just, I want people to get tattooed on their backs. Um, One of the first things that happened when I posted this picture on Instagram, when we did the big Image Comics publishing announcement, um, was that somebody made memes out of this image. And (laughs) that I feel like is like the internet equivalent of going to cons, comic cons and and seeing people cosplaying as my characters, which is also obviously something that is very important to me and that hasn't happened yet. So I will let you know when it does. But uh, yeah, getting getting memed here and you can see all of those reposted on my Instagram, which is Tina Horn's ass as well as SFSX underscore comic. Um, and so I'm very proud of that. And I love this moment. And Mike just did such an incredible job that like flourish of that like small in the background. Um, I just really love it. And I, I, I do truly hope that this stiletto to the eye, um, which is, of course, both gruesome and highly symbolic of everything that um, the, you know, feminine power and sex work power that this uh, sh- that this shoe exemplifies and fetish and, and kink and leather power um, um, exemplifies, uh, as well as just being a badass moment, you know, sort of uh, joins single white female uh, in the, uh, you know, top 10 list of, of greatest moments of high heels as weapons or high heel gore and violence. Um, that was really something that I wanted to have. Um, yes, so uh, the inspector uh, gets his eye gouged out, uh, and then in the uh, pandemonium, Avery runs for it. Here's another moment where Steve Wands totally shines with making the uh, police sirens, you know, into this sort of graphic visual element down here at the bottom of the page. And then, of course, the the last thing on Avery's list of um, sex work skills that she's putting to use is a, a high tolerance for very strong smells. Oh, and I, I should have said that what her her one-liner when she stilettos the inspector in the eye is that she's the has the ability to be glamorous in any situation. Um, yeah, so she has a tolerance for very strong smells. She jumps in the dumpster where nobody thinks to look for her, and the riot police are running by, and, you know, she thinks to herself... As she's sitting in this fucking dumpster, hiding from the cops. You know, if I was going to be running from the party, I, I shouldn't have abandoned my friends. I should have stayed at the dirty mind. And then she kind of has this moment where she's like, shit, not only was I totally wrong, George and I were totally wrong that abandoning our friends and our community would make us safer and playing by the rules would make us safer and make our sex safer. But also, I have nobody else in the world because I have isolated myself. My husband has been arrested. I have no idea what's happened to him. I gotta go back to my friends that I bailed on and ask them for help and sanctuary. Um, And uh, something that I didn't point out earlier is that uh, in the scene where she ran into Casey, you know, Casey kind of alluded to 
yeah, we've been pushed like literally to the edge of town, but it is a place that you and I used to fantasize that we might be able to set up a dirty mind someday. Um, so she knows where it is. So on page 20, we get the sense that she has been walking all the way from the mission to the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, where it meets Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And anybody who is from San Francisco or has been there will sort of recognize that this is based on the ruins of the Sutro Baths, um, which was a real bathhouse um, that burned down, I believe, in the like early part of the 19th century, um, where you can still walk around. And along with the San Francisco Armory, which I mentioned earlier, I really wanted to incorporate these real places in San Francisco into the story. And Mike just did such an incredible job of taking those references and, um, and, and then sort of making a fantastical version of them here as like a potential place for our heroes to squat literally underground. So Avery has been walking across town all day and, uh, you know, in the rain, obviously reflecting her bleak mood. And she's just like, fuck it. What happened to George? Everybody hates me. I hate myself. And, but she knows that she doesn't have any other choice. So she's like banging on the door, being like, it's me, you cunts, you gotta let me in. And you, you know, see this surveillance camera footage from the inside. And again, Steve Wan's doing such a great job with this like pink and yellow uh, click of the door. And somebody pulls Avery through the door, and it's Casey. And we see in this splash page, page 22, which is sort of elliptical with the dirty mind splash page of page one. This is the new dirty mind. They are squatting in the ruins of this bathhouse on the edge of in the ruins of this bathhouse on the edge of town. And Mike did such a great job incorporating all of this graffiti that has a red umbrella, which is a symbol of the sex workers rights movement and rights, not rescue and rough trade and just all these like queer and, and kink and, and sex work slogans and symbolism and the raised fists and, and everything like that. And, uh, you know, so Avery finds herself, you know, her instincts were correct. This is where the new dirty mind is. And Casey's there and, and all these other people are there and she implores them desperately. I need your help. And that is the end of safe sex issue one. That is where we leave our characters off. Um, a few other things that I just want to say, I mentioned that the back matter of this book um, is going to have a series on sex work superheroes. This one is Jack the Stripper, who, as I mentioned, I'm collaborating with on some really great merch for safe sex, which supports both me and, and her web store. And uh, this is one of Jack's single panel comics that she does. It's uh, pro testers at Pride saying, we're here, we're queer, and we're charging for sex, which I really love and was really happy to uh, publish and include. And this is a little conversation between the two of us about our collaboration and the themes of the book. Um, the image that is on the dirty work page of the high heel and the sort of more butch boot is by my friend Tamara Santibanez, who has done a lot of my tattoos and is a really amazing uh, queer zine maker um, and artist uh, in her own right. Uh, so I just wanted to shout her out. Um, I am super stoked that I got to make, I mean, I was always going to make playlists for every issue of the series with one song per page. And I was always planning on publishing them on Spotify, but um, to be able to actually publish the playlist uh, really warms my 
punk hard. I really ultimately feel like Image is just, you know, publishing my uh, mixtape playlist. So you can see here a song that goes with every page of the book. And, uh, and you can listen to that um, by searching for Tina Horn on Spotify or following me on Instagram. And I guess that's what I want to say. There are seven issues in the protection arc of safe sex. They're going to be coming out between uh, September 2019. And I think I guess it's March 2020. Michael Dowling is going to continue to do a lot of the work. And then for issue three, we have a little pop-in issue drawn by Alejandra Gutierrez, who who is a really incredible queer comics artist with a really amazing sort of pop erotic sensibility. And then uh, later on, Jen Hickman is going to start doing the interiors. I am so excited to collaborate more with Jen Hickman and to have a, an all queer team. And Tula Lote is going to continue doing the covers. She has already done some incredible ones that I can't wait to share with you. And this book is obviously incredibly personal to me, and um, it's a survivor that has fought really hard to exist, uh, just like a lot of sex workers and queers that I know. So I am so happy to have been able to talk about it on this podcast. Thanks, Ben. And uh, thanks for everyone who helped make this book a reality. And uh, I hope to come back on the podcast and tell you more about it. Uh, if you want to find out more about my work, you can visit tinahorn.net. Like I said, my Twitter and Instagram is at tinahornsass, which is spelled the same as at tinahornsass. And um, I guess I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Forever! This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered by Chelsea Jacobson and mastered by Anna Rubinova. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Ew, ew, ew.